Good morning, it's very good to be with you again. Let's bow our heads to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for the work of your Holy Spirit in the life of the early church. And we pray that with the help of your Spirit, we'll be able to learn from what you did and from what you've said about that time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you will have gathered, uh, we're thinking this morning about the conversion of Saul, that is the Apostle Paul. My title is The Ministry of an Apostle, Acts 9, verses 1 to 31, is uh, a passage, many thanks to Claire for reading all 31 verses of that, um, and uh, if, uh, if you've shut your Bibles, or if you haven't got them open, it'd be great if you could have that open in front of you, so that's on page 917 in the Bibles. Richard Dawkins, in case you're unaware, is a biologist and he is a passionate advocate of atheism. He says, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. He is deeply hostile to what he regards as the irrationality of the Christian faith. He's a brilliant man. He has a very witty way with words. Prolific writer, vigorous campaigner, persuasive preacher, though I'm not sure he'd like to be called that. He is full of zeal for a cause that he believes to be right and true. And he seems to have a bitter hatred of the disciples of Jesus who he believes are effectively insane and are in danger of destroying all he holds dear. Now just imagine if overnight he was to change direction completely and become a passionate advocate of the gospel, touring the world, preaching Christ. Well, that just gives a little taste of what it must have been like when Saul was converted. What happened to him? Well, I'm going to give it to us in five sections. So first of all, the anti-apostle. This is verses 1 uh, and 2 of uh, chapter 9. So 9, 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So what Luke gives us there is like a summary, in fact, of everything that changes about Saul, his teaching, his letters, his visits to churches, his planned visit to Jerusalem, and the source of his authority. So as a result of this encounter with Jesus, Saul's teaching is transformed from murderous threats to life-giving promises. His letters change from letters of permission to destroy Christian churches to letters full of passion that he writes to young churches to build them up. His visits continue to follow the pattern of going to the Jews at the synagogue first and then to the Christians, but their purpose 
changes utterly. Before his conversion, he wanted to uproot churches. After it, he wanted to plant churches. Before his conversion, Saul planned to visit Jerusalem with Christians in tow as prisoners. After it, he planned to visit Jerusalem with a gift for the Christians there. And he ended up a prisoner for Christ himself. Before his conversion, the source of Paul's authority was the Jewish high priest. Afterwards, it was the great high priest, the Lord Jesus. In other words, everything about the life and work of Saul was turned upside down. So here's a question for all of us right from the start. Do you know, do you really know, that God can change anyone? No one is beyond the reach of the grace and the power of God. Not Richard Dawkins, not Saul breathing out murderous threats, not anyone. Saul starts off as a kind of anti-apostle, and he is transformed into an apostle. How? By what happens next. So secondly, the confrontation with Christ. This is in verses 3 to 9. I won't read out all of that again, but we need to be aware of a few things about this confrontation between Saul and the risen Christ. It is sudden and dramatic, literally happening in a flash. Verse 3. Suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. It is, so to say, man to man. This isn't just a vision or an apparition. This is the living, risen Jesus of Nazareth meeting Saul on the road to Damascus, man to man. That's why uh, Paul, as he became, writes later in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, when he's listing the appearances of the resurrected Jesus. He says, last of all, he, the risen Christ, appeared also to me. It's a vital element of Paul's qualification to be an apostle. He was an eyewitness of the resurrection. He had seen the risen Jesus. Indeed, it's in some sense a physical, even we might say violent, confrontation between Jesus and Saul. Saul falls to the ground under its force and is temporarily blinded by it. Saul is faced with a challenge and a command that are verbal and audible. The others with him hear the sound, though they see no one. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Says Jesus. Rise and enter the city. This encounter is profoundly shocking. You see the state in which Paul is left. Not only is he blinded, but verse 9, for three days he neither ate nor drank. He's traumatized by the shock of it. But that's temporary. What is permanent is that Saul is totally transformed by this confrontation with Jesus. From being the master of his own identity, he is transformed into a slave of Christ, obediently being led by the hand to where Jesus commands him to go, first into the city of Damascus, but then on to a lifetime of service. This confrontation is, as far as Saul is concerned, overwhelmingly powerful. 
It's not something he has any choice about or something that he can resist. It's not for nothing that Jesus is called the Lion of Judah and that the Christ figure in C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories is portrayed as the Lion Aslan. I don't know if you've ever seen a lion close up. The most impressive thing about them, to my mind, is the sense of graceful, controlled power that can be unleashed at will at any moment. Well, Jesus decided to unleash his graceful, controlled power on Saul. So here's another question for us all. Do you know with whom you have to deal? It is impossible to overstate either the grace or the power of the risen living Jesus who is here among us this morning by his Holy Spirit. We have to ask ourselves whether we've faced up to the reality of who Jesus is and what he's like. Now, I want to look at the next section, both from the point of view of the disciple Ananias and then also from the point of view of Saul. So we'll go through it a couple of times. So thirdly, the fearful faithfulness of Ananias. This then is verses 10 to 19. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. I love it when these otherwise unknown disciples appear on the scene in these accounts. It's as if those like Ananias, who get a kind of walk-on part in the, bio, in the biblical narrative, are representatives of all of these unnamed disciples who are all over what happens. Most of us are not going to feature in the history books. But that does not mean that our discipleship isn't significant. The service that we render to the kingdom of God is all woven into everything that God is doing to bring his great plan of salvation to fruition. Ananias is a reminder to us that we count in the kingdom of God. Our service and our obedience matter. So he gets this very clear call from the Lord Jesus. There is no indication that he has a moment's doubt about who it is that's calling him. He is immediately aware that this is not some random dream. This is the real thing. This is Jesus speaking to him. And the Lord tells him what he wants him to do. Verses 11 and 12. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. That is a really amazing window into Christ's sovereign control of events. He sees everything, he knows everything, every detail, every street name, every occupant. When we're praying, he is ruling over all things. He knows your name your address, how you spend your time. It's a good thing that he's patient. And it's a good thing he loves us. Well, he had to be patient with Ananias. Because Ananias knows of this man, Saul. 
whose reputation clearly has arrived in Damascus before Saul did. So there's an almost comic exchange between Ananias and Jesus at this point. You can practically hear the pause as Ananias takes in what he's being asked to do. And then the gulp. And then in his confusion and fear, it's as if Ananias decides that maybe Jesus is not quite so well informed as he is. So he'd better bring Jesus up to speed about what's going on here. So he plucks up his courage to tell the boss what the boss doesn't seem to know. Verses 13 and 14. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So there's no refusal to do anything, just filling Jesus in in the hope that Ananias will be let off the hook. So how does Jesus respond? Oh, thank you so much, Ananias, for letting me know. I, I had no idea about any of that. Change of plan then, you, no need for you to do anything. I don't think so. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go. Jesus fills Ananias in on what's going on. And what happens in verse 17 is to the eternal credit of Ananias. So Ananias departed and entered the house. He takes Jesus at his word. He goes, he prays for Saul. And that simple, humble act of obedience was literally of cosmic significance. Ananias may have displayed a very human hesitation, but his fearful faithfulness, his trust and obedience led to far-reaching fruitfulness beyond anything that he could have imagined. In so many ways, we easily identify with Ananias, don't we? So here's a question for each one of us. For all your understandable hesitations, will you respond to Christ's call on your life? We never know what might be the unseen effect of our obedience. So that's the fearful faithfulness of Ananias. Now I want us to go back over that section with Saul in our line of sight. So fourthly, the empowering of an apostle. So this is verses 10 to 19 over again. What's been happening to Saul through all this? Jesus tells Ananias that Saul is praying and that he's let him know that Ananias is going to come and pray with him so he'll see again. So Saul is waiting. And Jesus tells Ananias what his plan is for Saul. It's the rest of what he says in verses 15 and 16. Just take a look at that. The Lord said to Ananias, go, for he, Saul that is, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias gets onto Google Maps, goes to the house of Judas on straight street, finds the blind Saul waiting there, lays his hands on him and says from verse 17, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Amazing those first two words that Ananias speaks. Brother Saul. And verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Now there's a number of things to notice about what's said and done to Saul here. Saul's calling is unique. There are many things about Saul's discipleship that are examples for us and indeed he tells us to imitate him. But this apostolic calling is unique to him. He has a particular and special role in Christ's cosmic plan. He is the chosen instrument of Jesus. He is given a burden to carry. And that burden is the name of Jesus. Like Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross, Saul must carry the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth, to Jews and Gentiles, to kings and common people. He must carry the name of Jesus, whatever the cost, and that cost will be high. Saul reminds me of the donkey that carried Jesus into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday journey. Saul is a beast of burden, carrying the name of Jesus on his bent-over back. How is Saul going to cope with this heavy burden? Well, he's given three things. He is given the gift of sight. The return of his physical sight surely symbolizes the fact that he is given spiritual vision. He sees the past, the present, and the future. He sees what God has done, is doing, and will do. He sees that Christ has died. Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. He's given faith and knowledge and wisdom and hope. Not that he keeps it to himself. It's all in here. An open book for anybody who will listen. He is given sight. Secondly, he's given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has sent me, says Ananias, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is the presence and power of Christ in Saul's life by his Spirit that will make his burden light and a joy and a privilege. Without the Holy Spirit, he could not bear the burden. And the same is true for us. And then thirdly, he's given tangible tokens of God's strengthening grace for those who are weak. He is baptized and he's fed. He's given sacrament and sustenance, you could say. So the gift of sight, the gift of the Spirit, those tangible tokens of God's love and grace are all Saul needs to empower him to bear the burden of the name of Jesus and all the suffering that's going to come along with it. So here's a question for each of us. Do we honor Christ's choice by submitting to Saul's apostolic authority? What is our attitude to what Saul, Paul, says here in this book that collects so many of his letters? Do we take on board his words as the words of the chosen instrument of Jesus? It's very important that we do.
And then we come to our final section. So fifthly, the immediate impact of Saul's ministry. So this is verses 19 uh, to 31, the rest of our section. I'll leave you to reread the details for yourself. Uh, but this is the broad outline of what happens next after the dramatic events of Saul's conversion. He gets to work at once on fulfilling the commission that the Lord Jesus has given to him. Verses 19 to 20. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. That's the end of verse 19. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. The message of his preaching is simply Jesus. He preached that Jesus is the Son of God, verse 20. He proved that Jesus was the Christ, verse 22. And this preaching and teaching of Saul's is increasingly powerful, verse 22. Saul increased all the more in strength. His preaching was persuasive. He confounded the Jews, verse 22. It was fearless. Barnabas later told the apostles how Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. That's in verse 27. He caused confusion among both, both Jews and Christians because of his complete transformation. Luke describes the amazement and fear in response to that. But more than that, he stirs up great hostility. In Damascus, verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. And later in Jerusalem, verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. That was the beginning of a pattern that continued on and off for the rest of his life until finally he was executed for his faith. But he is accepted by the church. His new fellow believers follow him. They help him repeatedly, not least to escape being killed and sometimes... <coughs> using creative methods like lowering out of an opening in the city wall in a basket. In the person of the great encourager Barnabas, they sponsor him in his approach to the apostles. Through those apostles, they endorse him and his ministry, and they host him. So this one-time archenemy of the Church of Christ is accepted into the heart of the church. And the impact, not least of Saul's ministry, results in a church which is blessed by God the Holy Spirit. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the church is protected and strengthened and encouraged and it grows numerically and spiritually. Kind of explosive impact with strong reactions both for and against makes me think of, say, the effect of the preaching in Geneva of John Calvin 500 years ago, or the young George Whitfield in this country 250 years ago, or Billy Graham in the 1950s. So here's a question for us all as we close. Will we be praying that the preaching of Christ will once again have a profound impact on our nation and on individual lives all around us. Will we pray that the name of Jesus will once more 
be honored. So let's bow our heads to pray now. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that we can look back to these astonishing events in the lives of Saul and Ananias. Thank you for that revelation of your power and your grace. And we ask that by the power of your spirit, there will be in our lives, our church, our nation, a new transformation as you confront us and change us all once more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>